Let's start our Dhamma talk with the Namo Tassa. Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambuddhasa Two days ago, in my Vesak talk, I bravely mentioned the Four Noble Truths. So the Buddha said what they are and what we have to do with them. The Buddha was not teaching to set up a nice philosophical structure to please the intelligentsia, but what he was concerned with was to give very practical and down-to-earth advice of how to overcome suffering. That was his sole purpose. So today we'll have a closer look at these Four Noble Truths. The Buddha's way to enlightenment was the culmination of a long, long journey. We have heard that after he got the prophecy from the previous Buddha that in the distant future he would become a Buddha under the name of Gautama, it took him four incalculables and a hundred thousand worlds. An incredibly long uh, span of time, almost beyond our imagination. And as we have heard two days ago, he was born as the son of a king, grew up as a prince, luxury life in the palace, but then being dissatisfied with that life, searching for a state free from suffering, free from being subject to this cycle of birth and death. He left the palace, became an ascetic, and was studying with the most famous teachers of his time. Very quickly he mastered the jhanas, but still he was not satisfied with that kind of happiness and bliss derived from the jhanas, because he clearly saw that that happiness and bliss was limited. It was temporary. And so he left them. And he, put, uh, he met up with a group of ascetics, joined them, and then also engaged in various ascetic practices, thinking that by mortifying the body, one could attain a higher state, or one could attain to the deathless. And one of the ascetic practices that the Buddha was also practicing 
was reducing his food to very little. And after his enlightenment, at one time, he was talking about that time as a bodhisattva, uh, engaging in various kinds of ascetic practices. And so, describing that practice of reducing his food. And I'd like to read you this passage. It's from the Mahasachaka Sutta. So the Buddha saying, I thought, suppose I take very little food, a handful each time, whether of bean soup or lentil soup or pea soup. So I took very little food, a handful each time. While I did so, my body reached a state of extreme emaciation. Because of eating so little, my limbs became like the jointed segments of wine stems or bamboo stems. Because of eating so little, my backside became like a camel's hoof. Because of eating so little, the projections on my spine stood forth like corded beads. Because of eating so little, my ribs jutted out as gaunt as the crazy rafters of an old roofless barn. Because of eating so little, the gleam of my eyes sank far down in their sockets, looking like the gleam of water that has sunk far down in a deep well. Because of eating so little, my scalp shriveled and withered as a green bitter gore shrivels and withers in the wind and sun. Because of eating so little, my belly skin adhered to my backbone. Thus, if I touched my belly skin, I encountered my backbone. And if I touched my backbone, I encountered my belly skin. Because of eating so little, if I defecated or urinated, I fell over on my face there. Because of eating so little, if I tried to ease my body by rubbing my limbs with my hand, the hair, rotted at its roots, fell from my body as I rubbed. So it gives quite a clear picture of how the Buddha must have looked like. Uh, during the time of extreme austerity. And so, as we know, he gave that up and embarked on a middle way, avoiding the extremes of indulging in sense pleasures and avoiding the extreme of self-mortification. And with this then, he made the big breakthrough and with that, he discovered the Four Noble Truths. And then, going back to these five ascetics and uh, teaching them the first discourse, mentioning these Four Noble Truths. Now, in regard to this 
four truths. Like here we have the fact that there is not only one truth, but four truths. If we speak of truth, commonly uh, people think that a truth, that's something unique and thinking in terms of something very exalted, very noble, something to behold. So people assume that there is only one single truth, only one thing can be the absolute truth. But here in the Buddha's teaching we have four truths, four noble truths. And a truth is not necessarily something considered as exalted or very beautiful or nice or wholesome. Actually also something bad or unwholesome can be a truth. For example, if I had told a lie Uh, to somebody this morning and then being remorseful and um, telling, confessing it to somebody else. If I say this morning I was telling a lie to so-and-so, then this would be the true truth. So even uh, admitting telling a lie and the telling of the lie at that very moment, that's the truth. That what was happening. So, we will approach these Four Noble Truths from a slightly different angle. The first of these truths is that which must be realized. It's that which must be thoroughly understood. The second noble truth is that which must be abandoned or that thing which we must give up, which we must relinquish or let go of. Then the third noble truth is that which needs to be experienced, personally uh, realized. And the fourth noble truth is that which needs to be developed or that thing which needs to be cultivated and practiced. Going back to the first noble truth which is that which needs to be thoroughly uh, understood. What needs to be thoroughly understood? What needs to be uh, deeply understood is the five aggregates of clinging. Or, to put it slightly differently, what needs to be understood is nama and rupa, mental and physical processes. Then, in the second noble truth, 
that which needs to be abandoned, that we need to let go or overcome, that tanha or craving, and more generally speaking, abandoning all forms of desire, greed, wanting, holding on, attachment, and so on. And here we must understand that craving, tanha, can only exist because there is ignorance. So the basic or main root is actually ignorance, but the direct and proximate cause uh, for suffering, that's tanha, craving. Then the third noble truth is that which needs to be personally and directly experienced, and this is Nibbana, or the unconditioned state, or that state which is devoid of greed, hatred, and delusion. And finally, the fourth, <coughs> the fourth noble truth, that truth which needs to be developed and cultivated, this is the so-called uh, noble eightfold path, like a path that has eight factors. And so, finally addressing these four noble truths, as they are usually referred to, like the first noble truths being the truths of suffering. And so we have seen that this refers to understanding very deeply the five aggregates of clinging, or to deeply understand the nature of nama and rupa, mental and physical phenomena because mental and physical phenomena, the five aggregates of clinging, they constitute uh, suffering or dissatisfaction. Then the second noble truth is the truth of the cause of suffering. And we have seen that the cause of suffering is tanha, craving, and that needs to be abandoned or overcome. Then the third noble truth is the truth of the cessation of suffering, and this refers to Nibbana, and Nibbana must be personally and directly experienced. And the fourth noble truth is the truth of the path, leading to the cessation of suffering. And this path is the Noble Eightfold Path, and this is something we need to cultivate, we need to develop, we need to practice. When it is said that we need to thoroughly understand Nama and Rupa, or the five aggregates of clinging, why do we 
need to understand them so well. It's because they constitute the truth of suffering. Dukkha. Dukkha is the word that is used here and it has a very broad meaning. Not only suffering in the very obvious forms, but anything that is unsatisfactory. Uh, not giving permanent or lasting happiness is referred to as dukkha. So in that first discourse, the Buddha said the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. And from previous talks, we know that the five aggregates are the aggregates of form or materiality, physical matter, then the aggregate of feeling, Vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant or neutral aspect of an experience, then the aggregate of perception, the aggregate of mental formations, and the aggregate of consciousness. In the Dhammachakapavadana Sutta, the Buddha defined dukkha in this way. He said, birth is suffering, aging is suffering, Sickness is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair is suffering, united with what is unpleasant is suffering, Separate, separation from what is pleasant is suffering, and not to get what one wants is suffering. So quite a comprehensive definition of what Dukkha includes. When the Buddha said birth is suffering, in the case of human beings, birth does not refer to the moment when a mother gives birth to her child, but birth begins right after conception. So Birth starts from the first moment of consciousness. And this is so in all uh, different kinds of birth. If it's from a womb, if it's uh, egg-born uh, beings, uh, if it's a spontaneous birth or uh, birth uh, from moisture. Then the Buddha said aging is suffering. And also here, aging uh, does not start when you are 50 or 60 or 70, but aging starts right with birth. Then the aging process sets in. Sometimes jara is uh, translated as old age, so that it's birth is suffering, old age is suffering, sickness. But old age is a bit misleading because this uh, implies, yeah, old age whenever uh, we think that starts. 
the last thing, not to get what one wants. And this uh, does not only include the very obvious uh, thing, like I want this and that and then I don't get it, so that's very obvious, that's unsatisfactory, but this includes also uh, unreasonable wishes, such as if only I would not get older, or if only I would not die, or if only I would, uh, would win 10 million in the lottery. At another time, when the Buddha gave a discourse, he mentioned five kinds of suffering peculiar to women. And three of these sufferings have to do with the female body. So these are menstruation, pregnancy and childbirth. And the two remaining kinds of suffering peculiar to women have to do with the social and cultural circumstances at the time of the Buddha. So one kind is uh, to live with uh, her husband and her in-laws, which was many times suffering uh, for a woman. And the fifth kind is to serve one's husband faithfully because that was the role of a woman, to save, to uh, serve her husband. And when she got married, she had to move into the house of her husband and in-laws. So, the truth of dukkha, the truth of suffering, encompasses our whole existence. And Dukkha refers to the inherent unsatisfactoriness of any existence or to the inherent unsatisfactoriness of conditioned phenomena. So our being is made up of these five aggregates and as the five aggregates of clinging uh, they are suffering, they are unsatisfactory and so that's why the Buddha said we have to really look at these five aggregates of clinging we have to carefully observe Nama and Rupa, and Rupa in order to come to see that they are inherently unsatisfactory so that we really understand their nature that we see that they never can completely satisfy all our needs, cravings and desires Dukkha can be divided into three levels. The first kind is Dukkha Dukkha, which means the obvious Dukkha, what we commonly uh, understand as Dukkha or suffering. 
like physical suffering, unpleasant sensations such as pain in the knee, a headache, uh, cutting one's finger with a knife, the resulting burning sensation. And also the obvious forms of mental suffering such as grief, despair, depression, strong frustration and so on. The next level of dukkha is called Viparinama dukkha and this is the suffering due to change. You know, it's not, a, not everything is obviously suffering or painful. There are moments of happiness, of joy, of pleasure. But all of these experiences bear the seed of dissatisfaction in them. Because these states, the happiness, the joy, the pleasantness, is conditioned. And so it arises and at one stage it passes away, it disappears. And so when the happiness, the joy, the pleasantness is no longer there, then that's when the dissatisfaction sets in. One uh, wants to have it longer or then one tries uh, to bring up that state again. And the third level of dukkha is called Sankara dukkha. And this means Sankara are conditioned phenomena and conditioned phenomena are subject to arising and disappearance. So anything that is conditioned cannot be the source of uh, happiness or peace. The constant arising and disappearance of phenomena is actually oppressing if you really uh, look carefully at that. It will dawn in the mind that this constant arising and disappearance of phenomena is actually very oppressing. You see, it never can give us this lasting or permanent happiness or security that we are actually striving for. So this Sankara Dukkha refers uh, to the fact that conditioned phenomena are inherently unsatisfactory. The way out of that is to reach the unconditioned Nibbana that is beyond uh, dissatisfaction or uh, uh, suffering. So when by when by looking and observing mental and physical phenomena very carefully, their unsatisfactory nature is understood, then we have to look for the cause of this unsatisfactory nature. And as you've seen, this is stated in the second noble truth, 
the cause being tanha, craving, wanting, desire, attachment, clinging, grasping, and so on. The literal meaning of tanha is thirst. So it's like always being thirsty for some more, never being, uh, never having one's thirst quenched. And basically tanha is thirsting for nama and rupa, mental and physical phenomena, because there is ignorance regarding these mental and physical phenomena. There is a basic ignorance in regard to these uh, conditioned uh, phenomena. One doesn't see their, uh, their flaws or their shortcomings because ignorance takes them to be something worthwhile to hold on to or wanting, um, there is this, day, uh, this constant cry craving, this constant thirst for any mental or physical phenomena. And so if one very carefully looks and observes Nama and Rupa, one can gradually come to see their faults, their shortcomings. And with that, one uh, is not craving for Nama and Rupa any longer. Let's say a person uh, very much would like to have a Rolls Royce. And so this craving for the Rolls Royce is uh, very strong and then he's very lucky somebody offers him a, a Rolls Royce. So he goes up to the car, opens the door, but to his great dismay, this Rolls Royce is filled with tiger snakes. I've come to uh, learn that tiger snakes uh, are very, very uh, deadly snakes. And so the moment he sees the Rolls Royce full of tiger snakes, there is no more desire to have this Rolls Royce. Immediately, that desire is abandoned because there is a flaw in this Rolls Royce. So Tanha only exists because there is this basic ignorance. It's this ignorance of not understanding Nama and Rupa or the five aggregates that the craving for these phenomena uh, arises. Human beings and generally all living beings, they strive to become happy. They want to avoid uh, suffering, pain and misery. They put a lot of effort into uh, trying to get happy or 
to feel well, to uh, have a good life. A lot of effort goes into eating good and nice food, to have nice music, or to get the right partner, to have a pleasant holiday, maybe in Bali or so. So all these different efforts to feel happy, uh, to have a good life, go into gratifying the desires of the senses, gratifying sense desires. So it's always looking outward, external things, to make oneself happy. It's like moths being attracted by light and if it's a candle or a fire so if they go too close to what they are attracted to they go to if they go too close to the flame of the candle then that's their death and human beings are not so much different from moths because of their constant craving of their tanha they die many, many lifetimes, again and again and again and again. So, most people, most people's life is actually driven by their desires, by their longings, by their attachments. This is like this man who is riding on a horse over a wide plain and his friend is walking and as his friend uh, sees him coming riding on the horse uh, he shouts at him hey where are you going and the man on the horse says I don't know you must ask the horse As we have seen, it's also two days ago, uh, on Vesak morning, when we recited the Buddha Viseka Mangala Gata in the passage of dependent origination, Tanha arises dependent on feeling, Vedana. And in the backward order, it said that when when there is tanha ceases uh, on feeling, when feelings do not arise, then tanha ceases, and it's exactly there between those links of feeling and tanha that this chain can be broken. We have seen feelings are part of each experience. We cannot uh, prevent feelings, Vedanas, from arising. But by being mindful of the of a pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling or a neutral feeling, we can prevent 
tanha from arising. And this is why to observe feelings is such an important thing. And that's also why feeling forms an aggregate by itself. There is this uh, example of a Mahatera who suffered from stomach cramps. A Mahatera is a senior monk. And apparently this happened when Buddhism was flourishing in Sri Lanka in the 9th century. So this Mahatera suffered from stomach cramps and in the beginning he was noting these painful sensations but as the cramps got stronger and more painful he was no longer mindful of them and so he was moaning and groaning and tossing about in his bed and at that moment one of his students a younger monk came into the room and apparently that younger monk uh, was an arahant, was already fully enlightened. And so seeing his teacher there overcome with this strong pain, he reminded him saying, don't give up teacher, observe the pain. And when the Mahatera realized that one of his students had come in uh, and saw him in that state, he was greatly ashamed. And so he made an effort to be again mindful of this pain in his stomach. And as he was uh, mindful of the pain, he noticed that these cramps his pain was like waves of pain coming and going. And as he penetrated more deeply, this pain was just a cluster of unpleasant sensations, unpleasant feeling. And as his concentration got deeper, then he could no longer uh, localize the pain. Didn't know, he didn't know any longer where it actually was. The form of his body had dissolved and what he was aware of was just these unpleasant feelings, unpleasant sensations of heat and pulling and throbbing and the mind which was aware of that. By that time uh, he, had he had lost the notion of his body, he had lost the notion of a person or I, me. There was only the knowing of these unpleasant feelings. And so with that he continued to observe and he went through the different stages of insight knowledge and also went through the four stages of enlightenment and lying there on his bed observing the cramps, he became fully enlightened, an arahant. 
And so with that he had realized Nibbana personally and directly experienced the cessation of suffering. And this is the third noble truth. What Nibbana or this unconditioned state actually is, is very difficult to explain. It's almost impossible to put into words this unconditioned state, this deathless state. And so, to give some hint how it could be understood or how we have to take it, let me tell you the story of the little fish and Mr. Turtle. This little fish was living in a lake and all his life he was living there in that lake. So that was the little fish's world. That's what he knew. And in that lake there was also living a turtle. And so one day as the little fish was happily swimming about in the lake he came across Mr. Turtle and they knew each other and so they greeted each other the little fish saying uh, hello Mr. Turtle I haven't seen you for a long time where have you been? and so Mr. Turtle said well you know I have just come back from a trip on dry land and the little fish goes huh? dry land? what are you talking about? dry land doesn't exist or what is this dry land of yours that you're talking about? is it wet? like water? and so Mr. Turtle said no no dry land is not wet and then the little fish asked well is it fresh and cool? and again Mr. Turtle said no dry land is not fresh and cool and the little fish wanted to know is it clear so that light can come through and Mr. Turtle said no it's not clear no light can come through little fish wanted to know further then is it soft and yielding so that I can push my fins through it and again Mr. Turtle said no no it's not soft and yielding you cannot push your fins through it and the little fish already getting a bit impatient asked well does it uh, have waves or uh, has it um, rise to, uh, does it have foam uh, on the surface and again Mr. Turtle very patiently good heartedly said no no it has no waves uh, there is no foam on top of it and so then the little fish said well you know this dry land of yours is nothing I just asked you whether it was wet or cool and fresh 
soft and yielding, a clear, or whether it has waves and foam, and each time your answer was no. So it's nothing. This dry land of yours is nothing. And Mr. Turtle said, well, if you believe that dry land does not exist, that it's nothing, you may do so. And with that, he said goodbye and went on another trip on dry land. So in the same way, those who have made the experience of Nibbana, that unconditioned state, tell us that it is real, that it, is, that it exists, that it can be experienced. But what exactly it is, is very difficult to describe uh, to persons, to beings, who have never made that experience. So, how can this third noble truth, Nirvana, be experienced? Or, what leads to that, to the experience of Nirvana, the third noble truth? It's the development of the Noble Eightfold Path, which means the Fourth Noble Truth, the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And so this is a path that has eight factors. The first is right view or right understanding. And here we can discern three levels. The first level is to have a very basic understanding. The basic understanding of the law of cause and effect. To understand karma and its effects. Then the second level is a preparatory understanding. And this refers to the understanding that comes through observing mental and physical phenomena. That refers to the understanding of the specific characteristics of mental and physical phenomena. So to understand the hardness or softness or heat or cold or the roughness of anger, stickiness of loba, greed and so on. And it also refers to the understanding of the general characteristics. These being impermanence, suffering and non-self or the impersonal nature of things. And the third level of right view, right understanding uh, could be called the final understanding or true understanding and this means uh, the understanding of the Four Noble Truths by experiencing Nibbana, by experiencing the unconditioned. And 
This understanding comes about through past knowledge, like at the first stage of enlightenment. That's the first time a person uh, experiences the unconditioned nibbana, and with that gets a real or deep uh, understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Then the second factor of the Noble Eightfold Path is right thought, sometimes translated right intention. And right thought basically refers to three attitudes. It refers to renunciation, to loving-kindness, and to non-violence. Renunciation as um, an opposite of craving, greed. Loving-kindness as the opposite of aversion, hatred, ill-will, and anger. And non-violence being the opposite of violence or cruelty. So one's mind should be filled uh, with these kind of thoughts, thoughts of renunciation, loving-kindness, and non-cruelty or non-violence. Then the third factor is right speech. And right speech is defined as not telling lies, then not slandering or backbiting or malicious speech, then harsh speech or rude speech, abusive speech, and the fourth kind, uh, gossip or frivolous talk talking nonsense. The next factor is right action. And this refers to three kinds of actions, namely not killing, not stealing, and no sexual misconduct. The fifth factor of the Noble Eightfold Path is right livelihood. And right livelihood comes about when one has right speech and right action. So making one's livelihood without having to resort to telling lies or malicious speech or uh, using harsh, abusive speech, gossiping of not killing, not stealing or taking what is not given, not engaging in sexual misconduct. And traditionally, there are five kinds of work that Buddhists should abstain from in order to make their livelihood. And this is abstaining from killing beings, so what butchers or fishermen have to do, or hunters, then not dealing with slaves. Nowadays, uh, we also can include some forms of prostitution, 
or girl trafficking. And then not producing or selling weapons, intoxicants and poisons. So if one abstains from these traits or works, and if one has right action, right speech, then that's right livelihood. The sixth factor of the Noble Eightfold Path is right effort. And this means perseverance, patience, not giving up or not shrinking back, to have courage, courageous effort. And this is traditionally defined as the four great endeavors, which means to prevent the arising of unwholesome states, to abandon unwholesome states which have arisen, to bring about, cultivate wholesome states that have not yet arisen, and to further and increase wholesome states that have already, already arisen. The next factor is right mindfulness. And mindfulness means to be aware of the object or not losing the object out of you or not being forgetful to observe the object, to be with the object. And the last factor is right concentration and this mean, uh, means the one-pointedness of mind on an object and when the mind is one-pointed concentrated at that time the hindrances are absent so right concentration is present when the hindrances are absent So these are these eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path as they are generally explained. Now a second explanation of these eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path referring to this uh, example of the Mahatera who was observing uh, pain. So the first factor, right view, right understanding means the right understanding of the object in that case the pain the cramp and so seeing that object the pain as moments of unpleasant sensations moments of heat arising and passing away or aching or throbbing or pulling or pressure so in that moment of seeing the pain in that way, momentary arisings and disappearings of unpleasant sensations, that's right view or right understanding in that moment. Then the second factor, right thought or right intention. In the context of practice, right thought 
means that thought, that state of the mind, which directs the mind to the object. And in speaking with mental factors, this is vitaka, like the mental state that directs or sends uh, the mind to the object. In the context of the jhanas, vitaka is called initial application. So this initial uh, application of the mind to the object, repeatedly directing the mind to the object. Then right speech and right action and right livelihood, these are the three path factors of morality, they are fulfilled by keeping the precepts. Then right effort, in this case it's the Mahatera's effort to observe the pain, to be really mindful of his painful sensations in his stomach. That effort that he needed to bring up uh, to not shrink back from the experience, or to not give up, to persevere with the uh, noting of the pain. Then right mindfulness means being mindful, being aware of that painful sensation, not losing the pain out of you always to have it in focus. And right concentration means that uh, one-pointedness of the mind on the pain. Having the mind strongly focused on the pain and with that having the hindrances absent. So, by observing pain or any other object in the body and the mind, all eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path uh, are present. And in the case of this Mahatera observing the pain, then he came to that stage where pain was just a cluster of painful uh, sensations arising and disappearing one after the other very quickly and so then at that moment there was no more sense of body or me or self or person there was just these sensations and the mind being aware of them and so with that uh, having right understanding of these processes seeing them as impersonal processes and in that way uh, actually realizing anatta. Sometimes meditators think this realization of anatta, the non-self nature of condition of mental and physical processes must come as a kind of glorious insight that at one stage there will be this 
light arising or this ping uh, in the mind and then anatta is understood. But it doesn't come in that way. It's rather by understanding the natural occurrence of mental and physical phenomena uh, that the selfless nature of these phenomena is understood. Just being, just simply no more identifying with these processes, no longer identifying with the physical process, let's say the pain, no longer identifying with the mind that knows it, just seeing it. There is mind, not a consciousness that is aware of something. And this can happen without an ego, a self, or a person being involved. And when that understanding dawns and is deep, with that, anatta is understood. And when things are understood in this way, in that moment of clear recognition, natural processes arising and disappearing, then there is no more desire for these processes, no more craving. Tanha is absent in that moment. And so when Tanha is absent and the cause of suffering is no longer there, then suffering does not arise. That means the cessation of suffering and having no suffering, that means peace or happiness. This Noble Eightfold Path is also referred to as the Middle Way. The Middle Way, uh, avoiding the extremes. And so, when we practice meditation, we are walking or practicing this middle way, walking on this middle path. And it needs awareness and some discipline. And by doing so, we avoid the extremes of indulgence in pleasure, pleasures, and the extreme of um, self-mortification, torturing this body or mind. Self-mortification is like tyranny over this body and mind, trying to impose dictatorship over the body and mind. And Indulgence in sense pleasures is like license to let the mind and body run freely, wildly, letting do them their thing. But both of these approaches, of these practices, are profitless and actually very painful. The Noble Eightfold Path begins with right understanding 
as we have seen, there are different levels of right understanding. And so, in the course of the practice, we go through the different levels of right understanding, having the basic understanding of the law of cause and effect, then understanding the specific and general characteristics of mental and physical phenomena, until finally it culminates in the final understanding of realizing the Four Noble Truths, of experiencing Nibbana, the unconditioned. So, from the initial or basic right understanding, if we keep walking on this Noble Eightfold Path, eventually we will arrive at the final right understanding of experiencing Nibbana, the unconditioned. The Buddha said this is so because right understanding slants, inclines towards Nibbana. Right understanding necessarily at one stage culminates in the experience of Nibbana. This is like a river who slants towards the ocean. So, at any given place in a river, the water there steadily flows towards the ocean. The water flows downstream and all rivers um, end up in an ocean, so the water will end up in the ocean. So with this, I sent this talk. May your insights and understanding slant towards the final understanding of the Four Noble Truths. May you very swiftly reach the ocean of Nirvana. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.